Okay. <clears throat> well, the first thing to say is a very warm welcome to you all here. Some faces I recognize and some I don't. Some I know are very new to this whole thing of doing a retreat. Um, and perhaps for some of you, it's even just the very first retreat. So we will take things slowly, and lest I, I don't want to frighten you tonight, we're not going to do too much. I know many of you will have had long journeys getting here, um, possibly feeling quite tired if you've you know, been working all this week or even working this morning or something. So um, we'll aim to finish this in about 45 minutes, latest an hour, and then start properly the retreat tomorrow morning. So this evening will just be a few words from me and we'll do a short sitting as well just to finish the evening. Just some basic practical things about how the retreat is organised. Those of you who have looked at the schedule, I'm not sure whether the schedule is up on the board yet, I don't think it is. We'll notice that it's organised in the usual way, um, for those who are not familiar, obviously this will be a revelation, into sitting, walking, sitting, walking. This is what we do on retreat, sit, walk, sit, walk. Um, and then I will talk in the evenings. In the mornings you will get instructions about what we're going to do during the day and I will explain and develop some of the themes. And in the evening I will talk on a number of evenings and other evenings I'm going to leave it open for questions to arise. So we'll have at least two evenings just totally devoted to questions and queries and things about your practice and about some of the things perhaps I've even said in the talks. So I'll give you a chance to come back and really ask things. But um, I would ask you not to try and make notes as you do this. You know, so if the questions are there, they're real questions. They're not ones you've saved up from three days ago uh, unless they're really still with you. And note-taking itself can be a bit of a distraction, as can reading whilst we're on retreat. So I would ask you to refrain very strongly from doing that so that we concentrate on the work which we're engaged in, which is sitting and walking. And for all the reasons that I will go into as we go through the week as to why this is so, such an important procedure. The retreat is about how we find or found mindfulness, this word that seems to have become such a buzzword in the Western world at the moment, as if it's a new phenomena. Um, I read something quite recently that said that mindfulness was a technique that was invented in America 25 years ago. Uh, <laughs> I think they lost a couple of noughts on the way. <laughs> Um, so we get this kind of disinformation about what mindfulness is, and actually I don't, this was a bit of a hook to get you here, the, the path of mindfulness is the title, um, because it's, my preferred term is the path of awareness, um, because what we're talking about is actually the development and the cultivation of awareness in all facets of our lives and bringing that awareness to bear on our lives. Before I proceed to say anything more, I want to kind of start up a conversation by reading you a couple of quotes. They're not Buddhist, um, but they have tremendously Buddhistic elements to them. This is the first one. Look on other lives beside your own. See what their troubles are and how they are born. Try to care about something in this vast world beside the gratification of your small, selfish desires. 
Try to care for what is best in thought and in action. Something that is a good apart from the simple accidents of your own lot. That's the first one. I'll come to the other one later on. So, look on other lives. See how others live. See what their troubles are. This leads to something which is going to be one of the themes that we're going to be looking at. So I'm really talking about themes this evening. We're talking about the themes of kindness and compassion as well, which runs through the whole of this founding of mindfulness, this founding of awareness in our lives. Try to care about something in this vast world other than your own small selfish desires. Um, This actually means the removal of yourself from being the centre of the universe. Taking ourself out of being the simple focus of all things that are important and those gratifications of your desires. And again, this is something we'll explore during the week. Try to care for what is best in thought and action. So the practice itself, although we talk about mindfulness and awareness, the development of this on a retreat, such as as the one at Guy House this week, but these are for your lives. I actually say awareness And mindfulness is a bit like that sticker. You know, awareness is for life, like a dog is for life. It's for nothing else. It's for actually taking it out there. What we engage in on the cushion or on the chair or on one of these meditation stools is a laboratory experiment. You are the laboratory. And we attempt to cultivate dimensions of our experience or to look at dimensions of our experience, often which are not really touched that much into our day-to-day, in the day-to-day quickness of our lives, in the speed at which they proceed mostly, often dictated by our jobs, by our family lives and all of the milieu in which we live. So part of what meditation retreat is about and what we're learning in this week is a little to slow down to learn to become a little bit slower in our lives Um, not to be racing ahead have you noticed one of the dimensions of a lot of our experience is racing ahead thinking about the next thing that has to be done there's an agitation that runs through our lives a restlessness that runs through our lives for constant stimulation for wanting something else. Almost like, where is the action next? This is what we're looking for. So, we're learning to slow down. We're learning to become more aware. This becomes awareness of what is happening in the mind and the body. Or perhaps just as the text put it, the mind-body. I came across a quotation quite recently, I can't remember who it was by, who said, I don't actually have a problem with the body and I don't have a problem with the mind. The thing I have a problem with is the neck. It appears to separate the two. (laughs) And so often in Buddhist texts we talk about mind-body and the integration of mind-body. Now this founding of mindfulness, which we're going to be looking at through the week and proceeding through a set of meditative exercises and cultivating awareness in different ways proceeds from looking at the body, looking at feeling, looking at overall states of mind and looking at the composition of those states of mind, what composes them. 
These are generally known as the four ways of founding mindfulness. And any of you who have read Buddhist texts might know this text. It's probably the most famous meditative text in the whole of the Buddhist tradition. Certainly in early Buddhism, uh, there are some caveats. This text, for example, in any of those, and I know through looking through the interview sheets, some of you have been involved in Tibetan Buddhism, this text was never translated into Tibetan, so it actually never made its way into that tradition whatsoever. But in the early tradition, from which I mostly I'll be speaking, this is the most important text, the four ways of founding mindfulness, often just called the four foundations of mindfulness, but actually more means the four ways that we establish mindfulness in our lives, or the four ways we establish awareness in our lives. So this is what we'll be engaged in for this week, establishing awareness, establishing awareness in the body. The body is not an adjunct to our experience. The body is primal to our experience. Coming back often to bodily felt sensation is actually more important often than dealing with what is going on in the mind. Understanding the physical correlate to many of our mental processes. The two, as I say, are not separate. Beginning to understand the arising of feeling. Feeling here being a technical term in the ancient language of Pali, which is Vedana. Vedana is the sensation that arises on the contact with anything. Be that feeling pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. To watch its arising, to watch its passing away. To look at it, to see it, to taste its texture, neither to cling nor to reject what is arising. To look at the mind in its overall structure, the way it comes to us. They have these phrases within the Satipatthana Sutta, in this Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta, which are talking about the expanded mind or the constricted mind. The mind that is full of sleepiness and drowsiness. The mind which is open and receptive. The mind which is light. The mind which is full of desire. The mind which is full of hatred, anger. To know that mind as that mind. And then I'll talk about the other much later on, about what's composing the qualities of the mind that can be directed towards awakening. And let me say right at the outset, the path, the Buddhist path, what this tradition of mindfulness, this tradition of awareness and developing of awareness is aimed at is towards something which is not called enlightenment, is towards something which is called awakening. Some of you will have heard me say this before, so please forgive me if you've heard me say it perhaps on numerous occasions, but it's a very important point. I actually think a very important point for stimulating us, that we are moving towards waking up. This is what we're attempting to do, to wake up. This almost implies, doesn't it, that we are in this sleepwalking state, walking through the world, sometimes eye half open, looking around, sometimes completely closed. When we're in this state, we're bumping into things. No wonder we have the same bruises again and again and again. We keep hitting against the same problems because we are not awake to them. 
And so this procedure of engaging in awareness is the antidote to the sleepiness, the sleepiness of delusion, the sleepiness and the sleepwalking that comes from the delusory state of not waking up to the way things actually are. And this is what the Buddha particularly was very concerned about, was that we wake up to the way things are, to move away from our fantastical lives, you know, lives which are lived full of fantasies, hardly ever living the actualities. This was brought very much home to me well, quite a few years ago. I came across a wonderful quote by Mark Twain. Some of you probably know it, which is this quote. My life has been full of the most terrible misfortunes, most of which have never happened. <laughs> yeah. We create... We fantasize, we're anxious, we're worried about things often that will never come to be. We lose our lives. We can literally lose our lives in not dying, but not being there. Not, as John Kabat-Zinn often says, showing up each day, being there for what is arising, what is happening in life. We're caught up in fantasies. We fantasize about the future, we fantasize about the past. We fantasize about our life stories, what has happened to us. So it's the movement away from that. I think this is a real challenge, and I think it's actually, for me, I don't know how it sounds to you, perhaps I'll get some reflection on one of the evenings about this. Awakening sounds a little bit more doable than enlightenment. I can possibly wake up. I don't know if I can ever become enlightened. But I can possibly wake up. Wake up to really what is here. Wake up to each day. Our physical waking to our literally being present for what is here. With its difficulty. Nobody is saying this is easy because life is a mixture of ease and difficulty. And so it's being present for the difficulty as much as for the ease in our lives, neither rejecting one nor grasping after the other. So to become more present, this is one of the major themes of what we're engaging in here. This is why I ask you right at the beginning, please don't escape into books if you can avoid it. Please don't escape into writing if you can avoid it. Because these are ways actually of deflecting ourselves often from the presence. You will have more than enough time in ordinary life to do these things. But to be present for what is here, whether it's the ease, whether it's the beauty that is present for you, or whether it's the difficulty, to show up for it, as I say John Kabat-Zinn says. So it's important that we move away from the distractions now, the one wonderful thing about being a guy in a house is you'll probably notice there's a great evidence of the lack of distraction, which means you're left with this very, uns- this very sorry state of having to be with yourself, and particularly as we ask you to be silent as well. Yeah. So a lot of the normal ways of distracting ourselves suddenly are taken away from you. Now, if this is your first retreat, don't worry if this appears to be difficult in the early stages. 
Um, don't worry, for example, in the first few days, if you feel tired. This is quite natural. Yeah. It's the busyness of our lives catching up with us. Yeah. There is a hindrance. Um, I love the old-fashioned translation of this. It's the third of the hindrances, one of the blockages on the path of meditation and the path of daily life, actually. And it's often referred to in the old translations of the text as sloth and torpor. <laughs> a dynamic duo. Um, more, it's the sleepiness and drowsiness of avoidance. Now, we'll be looking at this, and I'll be talking much more about these hindrances, but the sloth and the torpor are quite different from the simple sleepiness and drowsiness that arise from having busy lives. You know, notice I added of avoidance. You know, the avoidance is something often that occurs much later in our lives when we switch off. We don't want to deal with the difficulty. We don't want to deal with the problems. Um, and as I say, I'll talk much, much more about that as we go through the week. So, this is your task for the week, to sit and to walk. And to sit and to walk. Sometimes I don't even like the word meditation. Yeah. Meditation makes it sound a bit precious, doesn't it? It makes it sound religious. What we're engaging in is meditation. And in many senses, that's exactly what it is. It's derived from a Christian context and has a very specific meaning in Christian context, the word meditation, uh, that have, often has very little bearing of what goes on and what we're trying to do in what I call a more Buddhist environment. What we're trying to do here, which is much more in line with the meaning of the term that's used in the ancient text, is we're trying to cultivate something. We're trying to develop it. The first thing we're trying to cultivate is sati, awareness, as in the word satipatthana. We're trying to cultivate this awareness, or if you want to stick with a more familiar term, with mindfulness. This is what we're trying to cultivate. We're trying to cultivate calmness as well. And also to cultivate friendliness. Sometimes to cultivate compassion in our lives. So these are things to be done. Things to be cultivated. Things to be grown, literally. The Buddha lived in a very agrarian age, an age of growing things. And the metaphors that he used were often directed to people who understood about growing things. So he often refers to planting seeds and growing the seed of compassion or the seed of kindness, the seed of friendliness in your lives. So this is what we're attempting to do again in the things that we do here. The walking and the sitting, we're cultivating, we're growing. Initially, we are cultivating, and tomorrow we will move into doing a whole day of just cultivating a degree of calming and concentration. That's all, before we even move into the development of the awareness that I've spoken about this evening. The awareness itself grows out of the ability to have a degree of concentration, the degree of being able to hold the mind just a little bit steady. This is not fantastic concentration, where my mind is completely blank and I'm totally focused, but it's just a degree of holding the mind a little stiller. 
Now, the Buddha likens this mind that we're dealing with to a wild elephant. You'll find many kind of metaphors used in the texts, many ways of speaking about this untrained mind. And this is what it's really speaking about, the untrained mind. We're attempting to cultivate and train this mind. The metaphor that's used of the wild elephant is an interesting one because it says when they capture a wild elephant, they still do this in some countries where they still use working elephants, is initially the wild elephant doesn't want to be trained. It doesn't want to do that at all. So they tie it to a post which is placed into the ground. The initial response of the elephant is to want to pull the post out of the ground as quickly as possible to try and get away. Does this have any similarities with what goes on when you try to concentrate? Your mind tries to run away from it as quickly as possible. So, so what do you do? You keep bringing it back. Coming back. Now, here, this elephant can't get away because it's tied to the post. So what we're doing, though, is, in a sense, tying ourselves to the object by bringing ourselves back repeatedly, Again and again and again. And it really doesn't matter. I might say this right at the outset. There is no failure in this. Um, There is no reason to be unkind to ourselves in this procedure whatsoever. There is no failure. I'd like to have written on top here, no failure. Because we bring often to these procedures, these ways of practicing... Elements that come out of our ordinary education, out of our lives, out of the ethos of Western life, which are simply not there in the original traditions. One is, I've got to be perfect. When have you got to be perfect? Now. This is not the case. This is training. the, The great athlete doesn't become an athlete suddenly overnight. They're engaging a lot of training in order to get there. Now, if you want to be an athlete of the mind, you have got to engage in quite a lot of training to get to that point. So there is no train, there is no failure, there is only the training. This is all that we're engaged in. Many people think that it's a failure when my mind drifts away. No. That's all that minds do. I love... The idea that we often discover, you know, particularly in the early stages of meditation, you suddenly discover that your mind has a mind of its own. <laughs> Have you come across that one? You know, sit there and try to concentrate, and you find immediately your mind is somewhere else. Yeah. So we're trying to train the mind. So this metaphor of the wild elephant is about training. So please, please, I will say this a number of times during the week, don't think there is failure doesn't matter how many times, and you'll hear me say this in instructions again and again and again, doesn't matter how many times your mind drifts, as long as you know that it's drifted, and bring yourself back. Now there are different ways of doing that, and again we'll explore those as we go through the week. But to know where your mind is, to know where it is, Just a few words more, then we'll settle into doing a little bit of practice. Why do we do this? (laughs) Well, one is it's spoken about a lot. You might think it's good for you. Some people might have their GP tell them that this is good for them. 
you know, to go away and do some meditation. Helps with anxiety, helps with all sorts of mental issues. In the Buddhist tradition, this, these procedures that we're engaging in for the week are, are very specifically directed. They're directed to something which I don't really think there's an adequate translation of at all in the English language. Usually found translated as suffering um, in most of the popular books on Buddhism. What we're engaging in in this tradition is the attempt to overcome something which is a very easy word to remember called dukkha. Dukkha is the pain and distress and the dissatisfaction that goes with just living. The pain and distress that are just there as the warp and woof of your ordinary life. More often than that, it's very commonplace, it's extremely mundane. It's simple dissatisfaction. The simple dissatisfaction that's here, present, right at this moment as you sit on this cushion. And as you sit here now, there is probably something you're not liking. Yeah. I'd get you to examine that for a second. What in your moment, in your experience at this moment, is something you would like to change? Right at this moment. Now, if you can find something in your experience which is not quite satisfactory for you at this moment, it might be sitting on the floor, not comfortable, too hot, too cold. Um, wishing he'd shut up in front (laughs) so you could get on and do something else or whatever it might be whatever the sense of dissatisfaction is that is dukkha something you would like to change something you'd like to be different something you'd like to get and something you'd like to avoid now the Buddha says this was one of the marks of human existence that it was characterized by this sense of dissatisfaction. Almost we were structurally incapable of finding satisfaction in the ways that we live our lives. There is always something we're going to whinge about. There is always something we're going to moan about. Now, the Buddhist tradition has always been aimed at dealing with this sense of dissatisfaction. And again, I'll pick this up in talks in the evenings. To aim to deal with the dukkha that's inevitable in our lives that we cannot avoid. And there are three things that none of us can avoid. And these are old age, sickness and death. These were the fundamental issues of dukkha. We all get old, we all get sick, and because we're mortal corporeal beings, we all will die. That's just an existential fact. But then there's another dukkha. There's a dukkha that we can add on top of the fact that I'm going to get old, that I'm going to get sick, and then I'm going to die. There is all the anguish, the anxiety, the fears, the worries... And again, notice how I'm projecting into the future and not living now if I'm caught into those. There is the magnification of these things. There is the resentment, the anger, the frustration that can often arise in response to things which are unavoidable. Another thing that's unavoidable in this world, living in this world as we do, is change. Change, unless it's for our good, working for us, is mostly something we're not particularly happy with. 
and becomes another form of dukkha. So this is the reason why we engage in these practices, to deal with this dukkha that arises in day-to-day life. Again, I've used this particular illustration many, many times, but it comes from my own early training, my own background in India, when I was first studying. I studied with one of the Dalai Lama's tutors, very luckily. They were alive at the time when I first became involved in Buddhist practice. And one of them said that dukkha wasn't like being stabbed. It wasn't always sharp and painful. He said it was like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. (laughs) Which I think is very graphic. Um, And you can probably realize as you first start to do it, it's not terribly painful. But the trouble is, the more and more you do it, the more painful it becomes. So we're caught up in cycles of creating pain. We're, impl- we're, we're basically implicated in the production of many of our own dissatisfactions. We magnify them, we produce them. And then a lot of the time, stuff happens to us, and then we will even do something to that. Now, the Buddha referred to this as what he calls the two darts of dukkha, or the two arrows of dukkha. There's firstly the thing that happens to you, and then secondly the one that I shove in purposefully <laughs> and deliberately. You know, so not only is it painful, I'm going to make it even more painful. And then because it's more painful, I'm going to share it with everybody else. <laughs> and you know, why keep a good dukkha to yourself? Share it around among others. <laughs> this is often what we do. This is often what we're engaged in. So we're basically implicated in the production of our dukkha. And this is, again, part of the reason why we start to look at how we do this. We become familiar with the nature of the mind, familiar with its topography, with its undulations, how it is in moments on the cushion, on moments off the cushion, developing an eye of awareness for this. Now, as you can see, this does not come easily. This again refers to the training. To see this and to be able to release ourselves from the production of this sense of dissatisfaction. To lead more contented lives. Not bovine. When I use the word contentment here, I don't mean bovine, you know, the the, the cow chewing away at the cud in the field. (laughs) It's not that kind of contentment. This is engaged with life that can take what has happened to it, both in its adversity and in its good side, without clinging to something and without avoiding something. And again, this will be one of the themes that I'll pick up on the evening talks with you. So, just to draw this to conclusion. Why do we practice? Well, we practice in the Buddhist sense to overcome this problem that we have. The Buddha really says we have a problem, and that problem is dukkha. We simply are not satisfied. We are simply not satisfied And actually, perhaps we can never be wholly satisfied with life because stuff happens. And stuff continues to happen to us uh, that we don't particularly want. However, to get to any way of dealing with the things that are happening to us, both externally 
and internally, and the internal is often the response to what's happened externally to us, to our relations with others, the things that the world do to us, the situations that we find ourselves in, then we have to become aware. We have to become aware of how our minds, our mind bodies are processing this, how it's dealing with it, either optimally or malfunctioning. Now, I consider, actually, the whole notion of what we're aiming at in in Buddhist practice is optimal functioning. An optimal way of dealing with the vicissitudes of life, what Hamlet refers to as the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, how to deal with those as they come to us, how they arise in our lives. To do so, we have to engage in a training to become much more familiar with our reactiveness so that we can learn not to react but to respond. Most of what we do often in our day-to-day lives is simply reaction. Somebody is unpleasant to us And we get annoyed, angry, upset, whatever it might be. And it arises almost like that, spontaneously. There is something I see which I like, and I'm like Pavlov's dog salivating. And I want it. There's something I don't like, I'm avoiding it. So we're being pushed and pulled through our lives with very little choice with very little ability to choose when I'm in in a state of non-awareness, unawareness. Now, there's no fault to this in the sense that there is no moralistic fault to this. I'll talk a little bit about that, perhaps, if we have time. This is something that we, through our histories, have been conditioned into how to deal with what happens in our lives. And those conditioned reactions become exactly that, reactions. They become habits. So this is beginning to train ourselves to free ourselves from habitual reactiveness. And you're probably all aware that somebody who knows you very well can make you react really quickly. And you push the right buttons, tap the right triggers and they can get a reaction out of you almost immediately. This is how it's so automatic. To free ourselves from that, to learn through the training to have more freedom, more contentment, more engagement, and actually more life. Not to lose our lives not to lose our lives in our patterns of reaction, to to learn to live our lives by being present as much as we can. And that's what we're aiming to do this week, to engage in a little of the training. By the way, there's no promissory note about nirvana at the end of it. (laughs) But it is a training. If you're new to the practice or if you've been practicing quite a while, Well, for those who've been practicing quite a while, it's a top-up, refresher, to get you back into, you know, um, being able to take this stuff out into daily life again. If you're new to it, then it's a start of a journey. 
It's start of walking a path, perhaps, for your a path which is a path composed of a gradual expanding awareness. Okay, rather than talk about it, let's, let's settle down for a 20-minute session of meditation. First thing to do, and I'll say much more about this in the morning, but first thing to do is make sure that you're comfortable to start with. Yeah. Pay attention to being kind to the body. If you really do have problems sitting on the floor, don't force yourself to sit on the floor. Sit on a chair. Sit on a meditation stool. Now, initially, paying some attention to our bodily posture. Making sure that our spine is upright. The posture is relaxed but dignified, open. The head balanced, no tension. The head balanced at the top of the spinal column. The hands in a relaxed position. Now that could be one hand lying on another in your lap. Or it could be on the knees or on the thighs. That's something you can experiment with. Now what we're doing is in a sense setting our intention through the adoption of a particular posture, the posture which I've just outlined to you. Feeling this posture, sensing it. Now when we adopt this particular position with the spine straight, head balanced, the arms and the hands relaxed, and we're adopting an intention to stay awake and alert. The first thing you notice when sleepiness starts to come upon you is often the spine starts to lose its straightness. It starts to crumple slightly, to collapse. So we sit in this posture, being aware of what is around for us at this moment. What's here present at this moment for you in terms of sensations arising in the body? Thoughts and feelings that may be present for you. Perhaps 
slight feelings of trepidation if this is something new to you. Anxiety. Or perhaps even a degree of comfort and ease. Letting things from your familiar day-to-day life just go for a little bit. What's around? Just engage in that inquiry for a second or two. What is around present for you now? And as we sit here, we can become aware of our breathing. The breath rising and falling naturally. Coming and going spontaneously. I don't have to do anything. Just becoming aware of that breath, the breath which is life. Entering into the lungs, passing out of our lungs. The sense of our body breathing. And to attempt to remain with the breath coming and going, perhaps that sense of the whole body breathing, the expansion and contraction of the ribcage. Coming and going spontaneously. Holding your mind with the feelings of those sensations for as long as you can. Without force. Without brutalizing the mind in any way. And if the attention wanders, the mind drifts off. When you note that it's drifted, just bring yourself back gently with kindness to settle once again on the sensation of the body breathing, arising and falling, arising and falling. Once again, holding it there for as long as you can, firmly but gently, 
but without force. Until it drifts again. And once again we bring it back, not noting necessarily where it's gone, but just as soon as you notice that it's not with the breath, just gently and kindly bring your attention back. And doing this as many times as we have to in the course of this very short sitting. And it really doesn't matter, as you've heard me say, how many times that your mind drifts away. There's no failure. (coughs) Just each time that it drifts, you gently bring it back. Know where your mind is. Is it with the breath or is it somewhere else? And if it's somewhere else, just bring it back gently, calmly, but firmly.
as we sit to feel the body breathing, that expansion and contraction happening spontaneously. I don't have to do anything. The breath comes and goes. Bringing our minds back when we notice the attention has wandered with kindness accompanying it back to the sensations of the breathing just arising and passing away.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.